God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light. They was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. Bereshit bara Elohim et Hashemaim ba'et haaretz. I'm going to speak this entire morning in either Mandarin or in Hebrew. Do you follow me? <laughs> Some of the most majestic words ever spoken as God kind of raised the curtain on cosmic creation. Starting to tell us a little bit of how he did it. Not all the details, what we needed to know, who was behind creation, and therefore we should not be surprised. It's one of the most attacked verses in history. 25, 20, 25 years ago, we first met Phil, and then we started to team up a little bit in ministry at your church, and God knew. God knew that this day would come. He may know some other things in the future are going to happen. I'm very grateful, beyond grateful to be here. At about the time I left Bethel, 2004, you left a year or two after that, or maybe before. That same year, actually, my son was going to seminary down in Jackson, Mississippi, sat by a beautiful classmate from Ukraine, married this girl. Our last two or three weeks have been pretty interesting at our house to try and get her sister out. We did get her out, but we are talking about reality these next few days. And as Natasha was in that Soviet era cast iron tub, sleeping there, the only way she'd get protected in her apartment, the bombs going off relentlessly in Kiev and then get her out, got her out to a, to a train, and then to a bus, and then to Warsaw. Amazing thing. So in my mind, I'm grateful for situations like this. We don't have to worry about bombs going off every night hearing them. But spiritually, it's a good analogy. We do have our world, in some sense, imploding around us. So we want to kind of keep in, in that in mind, this conference, this Awakened Conference, deal a little bit tonight about the actual uh, text of Genesis, and the pros and cons of the creation evolution kind of controversy and exchange. What evidence do we have for creation? Does evolution hold up under scrutiny? Things like that. I also want to back up, I forgot to say, in the summer of 1989, pulling into Bethel College, didn't know what I was getting myself into, and a guy comes up and thrusts his hand in mine. Hi, I'm Rob Foster. And that was the very first person I met and not knowing that this day would come. So very grateful. Want to look, if you've got your Bibles, to open up to Genesis chapter 1. And just read those words again. In the beginning, God created. And I hope we can get, I've already got some issues here. Of not, there we go. Did God really say, jumping ahead to chapter 3. And I hope the screen is actually, there we go. There's a move in the church today, actually the last 150 years, to move away from Genesis 
There's many scholars that say it's the responsible thing to do. Genesis cannot be taken literally any longer. You can't even believe in Adam and Eve and call Adam and Eve historical without getting snickers from some mainline seminaries. And we'll talk about that tonight because this whole series is not boiling down to radiometric dating or how many, uh, how did dinosaurs get on the ark or what did, what did, how did Noah clean up the poop on the ark or even the question from last week, did Adam have a belly button and deep theological issues like that. The issue boils down to what is going to be our final authority. Just let that sink in for a moment. What's going to be your final authority? When faith and reason have some apparent contradiction, when Genesis and the so-called proclamations of science have some kind of contradiction, what's going to be your ultimate authority? Will you side with what the science says? We're not against science here. Or will you say God's word teaches some things and I'm going to stick with that first and foremost? We want to look at Genesis chapter 3, jump ahead to that passage, and see if the Lord doesn't have some lessons for us that we can carry on this week and the next uh, 50 or 60 years. Picking up in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field the Lord God hath made. And by the way, Phil, that's another question you could have asked last week, all these hotbed, why did God create the serpent? Why did he give them access to that? You know, those kind of questions. Very, very good. He said to the woman, did God actually say? that you eat of any tree in the fruit in the, uh, in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of it, the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And then the evil one, then screw tape, Beelzebub, however you want to call the serpent here, Satan, responds and said to her, you surely shall not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. If you study uh, the cults and even apologetics, you find that these four temptations have never left. Ever since the garden, these four temptations have been laid before people in various guises. For example, you will not die. A lot of the cults, at least two or three prominent ones, talk about reincarnation. You'll not die, you'll keep coming back and keep coming back until you get it right. So that's Twisted teaching is still before us. Your eyes will be open. Even back in the early church, you find that as Christ ascended into heaven, and then you had heresies that slowly tried to creep into the church. People that knocked on the doors, if they had doors back in those days, knocked the doors. Hi, we're the Gnostics, and we're here to introduce you to higher knowledge, real knowledge. Your eyes will be open to greater things. Don't listen to the Phil Whetstones. They've got nothing like we've got here. We can take you out into the astral plane, into the Akashic records, and read the Akashic records and give you real truth where your eyes can really be opened. Okay? You'll know good and evil. Now, I don't want to read too much into the text. That's a dangerous proposition with God's word, but at least that's a good synecdoche for today when you say you'll decide what's right and wrong. You'll decide, I'll decide who I can hop in bed with and who I, I'm not going to let anybody else tell me what I can do sexually or whatever, right? I'll decide what's right and wrong. And all those different guises of moral relativism where I set the rules. Man becomes the standard. And then ironically enough, he says, you'll be like God, which is incredibly painful. She already was like God. She's creating the image of the almighty God. So to have Satan say, you'll be like God, she should have responded, 
I'm a child of the king or something similar to that. But the granddaddy of all the errors, he gets her off on these four different temptations and she falls for this lie, if you will, because of the granddaddy of all lies. Now, I haven't watched a Disney movie in quite a while. I don't know how snakes would talk, but it might go something like this. Behind every twisted teaching, every false dogma, everything that's not holy, if you listen and train your apologetic ear closely enough, in the background, there's always that Ophidian hiss. Had God said. If you want to open up your scriptures, I don't know if all this bottom part made it on the screen or not, but have us for the balance of the morning talk about um, two different, radically different ways of handling scripture. I'm not quite sure how to interpret a pastor that has a hand grenade in his office. That's what that is. How do I interpret that? What is this? Is this for like for for board meetings or pastor parish relations? What is this? Okay, and it's not live, correct? I hope not. Just got my attention, right? I, I already confessed to Pastor Chelsea that I stole this from your office to make a chintzy, cheap illustration here. But my goodness, on this issue of origins, you can't talk about anything, according to Richard Averbeck, anything without lobbing a grenade into the room. If you hold off here at a literal position, people are going to get explosive over there. No, you can't do that. If you hold to the compromise position or mytho-history or whatever, it's all just a bunch of, uh, of stories, you're going to make a lot of people angry. So we already know that's going to happen. We already know that the grenade is going to be lobbed out there in some sense. We've got to just take a deep breath and just say, you know what? Our only thing we have to do, the only thing we got to do, hiding in our Soviet era, cast iron tub, bombs going on around us, Jesus, help us. Jesus, illumine my heart. Lord Jesus, Rabbi Jesus, help us to handle God's word like you would handle it. Nothing less, nothing more. In 2 Timothy 2.15, and again, uh, Greek is fun, and I I learned, I actually fell in love with Greek. I didn't expect that, fell in love with Greek, and there's some wonderful images and wonderful lessons that are tucked in the etymology there, especially with the Hebrew as well, but just to look at this, this, this verb where Paul talks about, I want you to rightly divide God's Word. Rightly divide God's Word. So I went through, suffered in China for an orthodontist for three or four years because my teeth were very, very crooked. So the orthodontist straightened my teeth over the course of three years. An orthopedic surgeon would, would tend to straighten uh, bones that are crooked or out of alignment. So anytime you see the word ortho, it usually has to do with something straight. And anytime you see that other uh, suffix on there, T-O-M, it usually has to do with cutting something. So the atom is something that would be uncuttable until Hiroshima. We found it. So the, back in those days, Tom was something that was to cut. So Paul comes along in this fancy term called a hypoxagomena, the only time the term occurs in the New Testament, but it's used all over the place back in those days. Everybody who heard the term orthotomeo knew what that meant. And Paul is here saying, I want you to rightly divide. Some of your different translations have correctly handle, cut straight, rightly divide. It's almost as if uh, he's saying here, not almost as if, you've got to handle the word with extreme precision. 
Now, come back with me in time 2,000 years ago and think about a person hearing that word. They wouldn't look at Paul and reading this or hearing him and say, what do you mean by that? Orthotomel, what, what is that? What are you talking about? Everybody knew what the term meant. So a farmer, for example, he would be, if there was relatively straight land here, he would want to cut a straight furrow to maximize his planting. So he would pick a point on the horizon and he would take his device and would cut a straight path going toward that particular point. Accurate. You didn't just kind of just a drunken farmer, just whatever, whatever. No, you had some precision involved. The word is also used of a guide who would get you from point A to point B. He wouldn't go the old New York taxi driver route and take you all over the place to run up the meter. Nothing like that. A good guide would get you from here to there in the best way possible. See, the point is accuracy. And lastly, the point that hits home most with me, whether it's the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, where this word is used there as well, it talks about a Levitical priest who would exactly prepare the animal for sacrifice. You didn't have any kind of drunken Levite that would just get his chainsaw and just start just slicing up the animal. No, you're preparing a sacrifice for the almighty God and you prepared it with exacting precision. So when Paul uses the word, he says, I want you to handle the word this way to orthotomeo, everybody knew what that meant. It meant you handled God's word with exacting precision. Not with the, however you want to take it, how do you feel? How do you feel about the text? How do you feel? Oh, how do you? Well, that's that special. How do you feel? Nothing like that in the Old or New Testament. And so God wouldn't call us to that through Paul's pen, wouldn't call us to handle God's word rightly unless it were possible to do that. And also the other side, unless there were people in the church that were tending to handle the word inaccurately, which is kind of what we have with the other Verb, 2 Peter 3.16. I actually talked with Pastor Chelsea, thought we even thought about the idea of having everybody bring a water bottle so they could twist it like this. Sorry about that, sorry. This is the one-off here. That Peter talks about a way that others handle God's word. And he uses this word saying from strablao, which basically just means a a twist, to be twisted, to be bent, to be literally to be pulled out of socket. That's how the word is used back in those days. And so if you wanted to describe a person with a twisted mind, I'm not looking at, at you, but a person with a twisted mind would be a strablosset, a person that's twisted that's way off base. And so this conference, as we start to even talk tonight about how different takes of the book of Genesis and how some people, I think, rightly divide it. We shouldn't be surprised that there are some people that do that. And we shouldn't be surprised there are some that also take great liberty with the text and make it say and teach things that no one in the early church could have even imagined was coming. That's why we have to settle the issue of what is our ultimate Authority. Look at some of the other ways the word is used in, in other literature to distort, twist, strain, pervert, to, to actually like put on a rack, if you will, under the Inquisition. And literally, it's talked about even people in those days that had their, their bones pulled out of socket. And the Lord is saying, no. 
You've got to rightly divide. I've given you the word. I've gone through these 1,600 years and gone through 39 or so authors and preserved the text for you, not so you can just have your pooled ignorance sessions in, 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 at, at, at Asbury Seminary or wherever. No, oh, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? No, we're supposed to rightly handle God's word. I know we know this, but it's just good to be reminded of that, the different ways that we're tempted to handle God's word. My mom's from Kentucky. By the way, Hutch comes from my grandmother, Fannie Lou Hutcherson. I'm really glad they didn't name me after the Fannie Lou part because that would be kind of a, a little bit embarrassing. I'm glad they went with Hutch. And be from horse country, uh, you know, you find out there's some horses that have sold. One I found out recently, one horse sold for $70 million. You know what the price of a donkey is? You can get a donkey for 100 bucks. You want to go upscale, they have some donkeys that are 1,000 or even I found one that was the most expensive of $3,000. About maybe 25,000 times cheaper than this $70 million horse. But there's a statement that farmers use in Kentucky and it goes like this. If you want to be a thoroughbred, you can't run with the donkeys. You might want to write that one down. If you want to be a thoroughbred, you can't run with the donkeys because I, apparently they can interbreed and there's things that happen and of course it takes the, the, the offspring is, is not of much worth. But think about that biblically. Think about that theologically. We as the missionary church, which I'm still a member, we as the missionary church are called to be separate. We're called to be holy. We're called to handle the word in a way that resembles how our rabbi handled the word. If you want to be a thoroughbred, you can't run with the donkeys. So you back up the tape of time and go to Exodus 19. God is looking for a holy people, a holy God looking for a holy people. Who would have thunk? Still looking for a holy people. Those will be separate unto him. If you want to be a theological thoroughbred, you can't run with the eisegetical or pagan donkeys. You have that kind of admixture here. Eventually, your theology is going to get tainted. And that's a large part of what we're trying to do with this conference. We can't always come at it indire- uh, directly. We've got to come at it indirectly. What is your ultimate source of authority? And once you establish that, if it's the Scripture, then you have the Scripture. You say, I'm committed to that. But then it's still possible to not be those that rightly divide God's Word. It's still possible to do this. God is still looking for a holy people. He wants us to be separate unto him. If you go back in time, and this is something where pastor, I want to just say, uh, another pastor in Nicholasville, Kentucky, asked me to speak on creation. And he said, how many weeks do you need? I said, I need about 20. (laughs) Wow. He was serious. I was serious. He said, I'll give you 10. He gave me 10 weeks 10 weeks to unpack a lot of the stuff I wish we could cover. We can't, so we're going to have to take some very broad strokes the next few evenings together. But I would say that we have, I think, Pastor Chelsea and Phil, we've set up a place, at least on Facebook, where we have a private chat room where a lot of questions we can't get to this week, we'll have a place online where we can kind of say, here's some links to that, here's a book, here's my response, and, and I take that very seriously, the questions we can't get to this particular uh, week. But go back in time with me. Go back in time 
where you have the Israelites. The Israelites were exiled. If you turn to 2 Kings, up, oh, sorry, 2 Kings 17. Why don't you turn there real quick? And if I ask you why the Jews were exiled, we would kind of know right off the bat, kind of remember that, why they were exiled. 2 Kings chapter 17, picking up at verse 7. And there's certain things the Jews were told. God said earlier, I want a holy people. And then they said, everything the Lord has commanded, we will do. We're in, we're all in. We, we know that you're looking for a peculiar treasure. We're all in. At that point, God gave them the Ten Commandments and said, I want you to be holy. Here's a good starting place. Not exhaustive, but here's what a holy people do, and here's what holy people do not do. I don't know if we have any basketball fans in, in the room, any, any Jayhawk fans, but there is, if you go to Kansas, University of Kansas in particular, and you mention the name Ernie Cosmos Quigley, everybody knows who Ernie Cosmos Quigley is. Now, he's been dead for maybe 40 years, but in the middle part of the last century, he was an iconic referee at games. And so what would happen would be, everybody knew his personality, and so when the opposing team was there at the, at the home court, and when the opposing team committed an infraction, everybody knew what was coming. Everybody knew what was gonna happen. Ernie Quigley, the Quig, they called him the Quig, he would get up in the, in the person who traveled or, or double dribbled or whatever, and he would get right up in their face, and he would say, you can't do that! <laughs> and everybody, in the new, they knew it was coming. And so the entire field house, yeah, they would start pointing the finger at the double dribbler and say, you can't do that. And you know what? We need a little bit more Ernie Quigley's in the church. Not people that foam with the mouth and scream, but say, you know what? God's word says this. You can't do that. We're called to be separate. We know that, but it's just helpful to be reminded of that. And here we have some examples, some couple I just pulled out this morning, just say there's, there's so many here, but didn't follow the Lord. We, they did despicable things. They followed their evil king. It even says over here that they sacrificed, verse 17, they burned their sons and daughters as offerings. Now, this is not the time to replay all of the exile, all the history behind that. But think about this. This is the price of failing to keep separate. So we find the waves that went off. Of course, you know that the northern kingdom was the most evil. They had 19 evil kings. The southern kingdom, mostly good kings, a little bit of mixture, mostly good. So the southern kingdom, the two tribes in the south, were the ones that kept closest to God. Of course, that means they were exiled later. But still, they fell away, and so they also were Exiled. So the first batch, the ten tribes in the north, were exiled to Assyria. Then some years later, the southern kingdom was exiled to Babylonia. Some kids, of course. You can make it out in this painting here at the bottom, just taken away from their homeland. They're going off 
they think forever, and most of them it was forever, didn't realize that God had already had a plan. He talked about 100 years earlier that even the person Cyrus would be the person, the prediction would be he would be the one to free the people and send them back to their homeland. Now, don't miss our original point here, keeping pure, keeping pure, keeping pure. They didn't keep pure. They worshiped false idols. They set up all kinds of pagan temples, and God said, enough of this, right? And it says there in that chapter, these prophets down in verse 13 warned them, you can't do that. They were the precursors to the Ernie Quigley. You cannot do that. And they kept doing it. So we've got them going off, being hauled off to the foreign land, to these pagan lands for 70 or so years. And then God, by his graciousness and his providence, allows them to return back. I can't imagine anybody 80 years old. We probably have some people that are 70 or 80 in this room, even 90 perhaps. Can you imagine a 90-year-old person taking that 1,000-mile trek back from Assyria west back to their homeland? Probably happened. Mostly young people, those were born in pagan captivity. And here you come back. And you can have people that are coming there. They left. Their memory was before the destruction of the temple. Their memory was that the Solomonic Temple was one of the greatest wonders of all time. And yet it had been burned, destroyed to sheer rubble. Imagine that person being led by the grandkids, perhaps, being led back to, to the whole land, the heart. <laughs> so pumped, so excited. Coming back, God has made a way for us to come back. And by the way, most of the people, 95 or 99% of the, the ones that came back were from the southern kingdom. That says a lot, the ones who were drawn back to the Holy Land. This elderly person being led back to where the temple was. And what do you see? Charred rubble. I don't know, I wasn't there, contrary to popular opinion. I can imagine someone saying in clear Aramaic to their grandkids, this is the price of failing to keep separate. This is the price of failing to keep separate. As we enter into this time together, we'll have an altar call today, just a call to reflection, let out a, bit, a little bit early here, but to remind ourselves, we're not just playing games, we're not just filling up so we can check off some awakened box and go on to our other activities. It's a call to remind ourselves who we are and what we've been called to. We're not called to play silly games. What's the, what's the world saying? Where do we need to capitulate here? We're called to be radically addicted to God's word and to have a hermeneutic that involves rightly dividing God's word as much as possible, as much as reasonable with all the grace that God has given us here and to move away from this kind of handling of God's word. Not meant to be condescending because I'm speaking to myself here. I'm embarrassed the views I held 30 years ago. I'd have some mentors take me under their wings, say, let me show you, Hutch, let me show you that you're not handling God's word 
correctly. The price of failing to keep separate means that we have, well, I don't want to mention any denominations, but we have some major denominations today that have gone through the death throes, the death march the last 40 years and now have given up the Bible completely because someone, and Ernie Quigley, didn't have the guts to stand up decades back. You can't do that. Bereshit bara Elohim et hashamayim ba'et ha'aretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Satan knows that. I'll kind of connect those dots tonight. He knows that that opening verse, and especially the next few chapters, spells his demise. Because sometimes Christians fail to recognize the direct link between Calvary and the Garden of Eden. All early Christians knew this. All the church fathers knew this. When they envisioned Christ on the cross and saw him there, they knew there was always, just like Satan knows this, there's always a direct link. He was on the cross because of something that took place in a literal garden, a real literal disobedience with a real literal couple. And yet a lot of major scholars today who claim to be holding to biblical authority say there's no Garden of Eden. There's no literal couple. There's no original sin. If that's the case, right, if that gets fuzzified, then where does the fuzzification stop? Ask ourselves, why was Christ on the cross? We say for sin. Sin that came in where? You see the connection? That's why I think screw tape goes overboard to try and lob grenades into our theological discussions, but to get us to fuzzify that connection between Eden and Calvary. And if we come away from any one thing this week to make sure we see that connection and understand why it's such a hot issue in the church today. It shouldn't be if we're keeping separate under God's word. But there are some people that have crept in, that have Trojan horsed many seminaries, and got us to think like the world thinks. And when you do that, and get away from rightly dividing God's word, there's no way to stop that. Where would the process stop? Pastor Phil, you come and close us. First of all, would you thank Hutch for being with us today? So if you're listening the way I was listening this morning, uh, my head was going boom, 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 right? Because of all the different aspects. What I love is how as we were chatting this morning, as Hutch was bringing an overview of the authority of God's Word, how all of it came right back. The whole Word of God working together to point us to the One who's created the heavens and the earth. Mm -hmm. So Father, today we thank You. Probably each one of us could confess right now that we've twisted Your Word to fit what we want it to say. Mm-hmm. So Lord, we, we confess and we ask your forgiveness for that. Mm-hmm. And understanding that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. 
penetrates even into dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the very thoughts and the motives of the heart. Mm -hmm. Holy Spirit, teach us, we pray. Even the very deep things of God. And thank you, Lord, for your word which guides us very clearly, but always guides us to you. As we go today and throughout this week and as we're together throughout this week, I pray you would challenge us. I pray that you would adjust us correctly. Lord, even when you have to judge the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart, I pray that you would do so. But Lord, willingly we know that you don't do that because you hate us. It's because you love us and you want us to be conformed into the image of your Son. Mm -hmm. And so we thank you in Jesus' name today. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.